All right, well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? This morning in our study in Matthew's Gospel, we are in chapter 5, looking at a section, uh, a section that is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, which consists of eight qualities that are inherent in the life of those who have received Jesus into their hearts as Savior and Lord. Now, so far we've looked at four of the Beatitudes. We saw Jesus said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. Then we saw in verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. And then finally last week we saw in verse 6, the fourth Beatitude, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that brings us in our study this morning to the fifth Beatitude in verse 7, where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted Beatitudes of them all. Some see it in almost kind of like a karmic way. Uh, they say, if you're merciful to others, they will be merciful to you. And so they kind of turn it into a, a humanistic golden rule of sorts, you know, for mankind to live by, which says, be nice to others and they'll be nice to you. And you know what? That may sound nice, but it really isn't true with regard to the world at large, is it? I mean, the world at large, and especially the Roman world of Jesus' day, did not then nor does today appreciate or admire mercy. The Romans admired justice, courage, power, but not mercy. In fact, the philosophers of the day called mercy, and I'm quoting them, a disease of the soul. It was considered an affliction to be abhorred, not a virtue to be admired. Others totally misinterpret this verse and say, well, what Jesus is talking about here, what he's teaching is, is that getting mercy from God, and they're thinking of salvation, getting mercy from God to be saved means you have to show mercy to others. You don't show mercy to others, he will show mercy to you. And they draw from what Jesus would later on say in, in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 6. But let me just say this with regard to that kind of thinking. If I'm only forgiven in proportion to how I forgive, in other words, if the only way God's going to forgive me is if I forgive others who have wronged me. And if the only way God's ever going to show me mercy, and I'm talking about salvation mercy now, is the only way I'm going to receive mercy to be saved, I have to show mercy always to others who have wronged me, then guess what, folks? I don't think any of us are making it, okay? I don't think any of us are making it. You have to understand something, that everything God gives to us, He gives to us as a gift of grace. We don't earn anything from God, we can't. We don't deserve anything from God. Nothing we do for him will ingratiate him to us where he now owes us something. We do for God out of love for him, period, and he responds and gives to us gifts of grace that are not merited, but are unmerited gifts. That's what grace means, unmerited favor. Everything God does for us is by grace, and especially I'm thinking of salvation, especially salvation. I mean, that interpretation totally sets aside the gospel of grace, first of all that God will only show me mercy and salvation as I show mercy to others. And it completely abrogates what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, not anything you do. 
It is a gift of God, not the result of your works, lest any should boast. And remember, once again, these beatitudes are really the attitudes or the qualities of those who are already saved. They are the attitudes of the Holy Spirit living in the heart of the believer in Christ. And as such, they are not the conditions for attaining salvation. They become rather the fruit of salvation. And as Jesus said, you will know them by their what? Fruit. You're going to know my people by the fruit. The fruit doesn't make them Christians. It just testifies that they are believers in Christ, right? You see, as we've already talked about in this study, mercy is an attribute of the nature of God. And the only way for God's mercy to become part of me, well, is to have the nature of God become part of me. And that's exactly what Peter said happened at the new birth. When we gave our hearts to Christ, Jesus Christ came to live in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. And as such, we became partakers of the divine nature. Very important point. Now God's nature is within me as a believer. And we begin to see the fruit of God's nature manifested in our lives. The love, the joy, the peace. And one of those attributes, of course, would be mercy. These things are inherent in the child of God who has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because they are attributes of God's nature. We can't manifest these things. Certainly, fallen man can show mercy one day, and then he puts his foot on the head of somebody else the next day and is vindictive and, and judgmental and takes you know, anger out on his enemy. The mercy we're talking about here, though, is something that is ongoing, that is, that is just a part of your life now because Jesus is a part of your life. He is your life. Now, according to the theologians, God has two kinds of attributes, absolute and relative. Absolute attributes and relative attributes. The absolute attributes describe what God is in himself apart from his creation. For example, the Bible says God is love. And God would still be love even if there were no human beings around to know about it or to show that love too. God is love. It's, his love is not dependent on anybody around to show it to. He is love whether there's anybody around or not, right? Because that's an, an absolute attribute of God. The same is true with other absolute attributes of God like truth and holiness. Again, these are absolute attributes of his nature. But you see, when God created man... God had to relate to man. And so we have what the theologians call the relative attributes of God. Truth becomes faithfulness, holiness becomes justice, and love becomes grace and mercy. And mercy, folks, is one of the spiritual bridges that God has built so he can relate to you and me. And mercy is a bridge that you and I must build if we're going to relate lovingly to others. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about those who have received God's mercy because God is now in them. They're saved. And now God wants us to then build a bridge. As God has built a bridge to us through his love and mercy, now he wants us to build a bridge to others who are lost through that same love and mercy which is in us because God is in us. And wants, he wants us to show that love to this world so that people know what he is like. Now, with that in mind, we need to ask ourselves, well, what is the meaning of mercy? I mean, what does this concept encompass? The Greek word for mercy encompasses anything that you do to help somebody in need. Literally, it's just compassion and action is the idea. I think the Hebrew word is even more interesting because the Hebrew word for mercy literally means, listen, to get into someone else's skin, to see what they see and to feel what they're feeling. It doesn't just mean feeling sorry for them or to cast empty pity on them, which makes you feel like a compassionate person. You know, a lot of people think, you know, I'm a compassionate person. Why? Well, I feel sorry for people. 
Okay, well, that's great. Uh, but you know what? Uh, that does nothing to help them. See, on the contrary, the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about here is to put yourself in their place, to see what they see. To, you put the, yourself in their place with the intent of understanding what they're going through so you can help them. Now, of course, the ultimate demonstration of mercy was how Jesus literally put himself in our skin at the incarnation, right? He literally put himself in our place. He became one of us to feel what we were feeling, to understand where we were coming from. And in so doing, he did that because his purpose was to then help us or, as we know, to save us. But so often, we're like the priest and the Levite in the story or the parable that Jesus told the Good Samaritan. Remember that? How Jesus said there was a certain man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very treacherous area, by the way. And he fell among thieves. Jumped out, attacked the guy, robbed him, beat him, left him laying on the road half dead. Well, in the course of time, here comes a priest, the Jewish priest. Very holy person, right? Sees the guy laying on the ground, walks by on the other side of the road, keeps on going. Not long after the priest leaves, here comes a Levite, another very holy religious person. He sees the guy laying there, and he does the same thing. He just passes by on the other side and keeps going his way. Now, I would imagine that the priest and the Levite had pity for the guy. I would imagine they felt sorry for him. Oh, man, wow, poor guy. You know, we're going to really have to do something about the crime in this area. It's terrible. It's just that they didn't help the guy, right? So Jesus then says, and now comes the Samaritan. Now, this is... When you're talking to a group of Jews, because Jesus had just gotten done talking about loving your neighbor, and so one of the lawyers of the law, it's always a lawyer in the crowd, said, you know, who is my neighbor? He told me we got to love our neighbor. Well, who is our neighbor? And Jesus taught, gave this parable, right? He said, now here comes the Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And Jesus is going to make the, the bad guy the good guy in the story, right? So here comes the Samaritan. He sees the guy laying there, you know, on the ground, and he gets off his animal and stoops down, and he binds up his wounds, pouring in them oil, uh, wine to disinfect, no doubt, and oil to soothe. He binds up his wounds, put the guy, puts the guy in his own animal, takes him to a nearby inn, gives the innkeeper some money, and says, look, take care of this guy, and whatever you spend above and beyond what I've given you, when I come back this way next time, I'll repay you. And Jesus said, you know, who was more of a neighbor to the guy who fell among thieves? And they said, well... We guess the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, that's right. Go and do the same. Who is my neighbor? Who should I love? Anybody in need. How should I love them? I should meet their need. See, we need to examine ourselves to see if we only have empty pity on the plight of others who are going through difficult times. A lot of people are going through difficult times, by the way, right now. Do we, do we only have empty pity? You know what I mean? Do we just feel sorry for them? Or do we let our pity lead us to mercy where we actually then take it to the next step and try to help them. And I know that you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I, I can't help everybody, okay? It's a lot of people in need. Can't expect me to go help everybody. No, uh, I certainly don't, and God doesn't. But what God expects you to do is help those who he puts in your path. Wasn't that guy in the path of that priest and Levite? And they walked by on the other side. They went their way. They didn't help. No, I can't help everybody. But I can certainly help those that God puts in my path. Now, I know at this point, some people take a kind of a hard line, okay, because so many people are suffering the consequences of their own irresponsible actions, aren't they? 
So we see in ministry people who have been taking drugs for years and now they've lost everything or, or they've been doing some other destructive behavior and now they find themselves in a terrible circumstance, right? And the tendency for some of us is to say, well, look, they're only getting what they deserve. Why should I help them? Why should I be expected to help them, right? They made their bed. They need to lie in it now. But isn't that what God's mercy is all about? We say, well, they're getting what they deserve. But isn't that what God's mercy is all about, not getting what we do deserve? Isn't that the definition of mercy? Hadn't we made our bed, quote-unquote, when it came to the sin in our lives before we got saved? I mean, weren't we just getting what we deserved, which was to spend eternity in hell? But as Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God who is rich in what? Mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent Jesus, and by his mercy, he saved us. And now Jesus is saying that we need to show the same mercy toward others. Look, we're not condoning their sin. We're not being soft on sin. But God is saying, look, show them loving compassion in spite of their sin. As they're suffering the consequences of their sin, let them know. See, here's the thing about the consequences of our sin. People engage in destructive behavior like a lot of us did before we got saved. And you know what? When you, when you participate in, in destructive behavior, the consequences beat you up pretty bad, don't they? And while the consequences are beating you up pretty bad, you know what it's doing? It's tenderizing your heart to the voice of God. And now at one point, a person's heart is tender to God's voice. And now he sends one of us to reach out. And of course, actions speak louder than words, don't they? And so God has us reach out and do something to help them in the physical because that will open a door for us to give them the gospel, which is what they really need. They need help in the spiritual. They need to be saved. But if we just take a hard line and go, well, not my fault they're in that predicament. That's true. It wasn't God's fault we were in this predicament, though. Yet he still rescued us. He saved us by his mercy. He came down, climbed into our skin, and then went to the cross that we could have everlasting life. And he says, now I ask you to build a bridge of mercy to those around you. No, you can't help everybody. But you can certainly be merciful to those that I put in your path. Where you climb into their skin in a sense. Feel what they're feeling, okay? Experience what they're experiencing a little bit. Because that will help you to have compassion to then reach out and show them mercy. To help them in this time of need. Which opens the door and allows God to really touch them for Jesus and save them. Listen to what James said in chapter 2. I want to quote verses 8 and then 13. He said, if you really fulfill the royal law, I love that, the royal law, what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, James says, you do well. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You want God to be merciful to you? Well, you know what? In a sense, I guess we could say that, you know what? God is watching us. And although God does give us gifts of grace, there's a lot of times where, the, where God says, you know, give and it shall be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, right? And God is looking for us who want mercy, and he's saying, well, are you willing to show mercy? I love what uh, Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 3. He said, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, right? Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. This is how God treats us. Now God says, now you go out and you treat others the same way. My mercy is always new for you. You go out and show others mercy by stooping down 
to help them where they have fallen and to raise them up in the love of Christ. All right, well, let's take one more. Let's look at the sixth beatitude in verse 8, where Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I'd like to start off by saying that nothing is more important in the eyes of God than a pure heart. I mean, what you are, how you think, what you do, are really all the result of what condition your heart is in. It is therefore no exaggeration to say that your heart is truly at the heart of everything God desires for your life. Now, let's define what we're talking about because, you know, medically speaking, of course, the heart is that organ inside of our chest cavity that pumps blood to the various parts of our body. We're not talking about that. Biblically, when the biblical writers use the word heart, basically the idea is this. They're talking about the master control center of your soul, which is your inner man. And the heart is the seat of the will, which controls the way you live your life. Very important concept. That's why the Word of God admonishes us in Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, because out of it flow the issues of life, right? Guard what gets into your heart. Guard what you feed your mind on, because a lot of that's going to trickle down and become a part of your core convictions of your heart, and will then motivate how you live. Guard your heart, right? Now, there are two kinds of hearts in the world. It's very simple. Pure hearts and polluted hearts. Or in other words, redeemed hearts and fallen hearts. And we're talking spiritually, of course. And since the Bible says that out of the human heart would flow the actions of a person's life, we can see that great good has come from those who have redeemed hearts, while at the same time great evil has come from those whose hearts are unredeemed and polluted by sin. Let me just talk about the polluted hearts just for a second. You know, this is the kind of heart that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Out of this kind of heart, he said, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And I'm sure the Lord could have kept on going all day. But you get the idea, all right? I mean, the evil in the hearts of people in our society, I mean, just turn on the news, right? Just, I mean, don't you get depressed looking at the news? The evil in the hearts of people in our society has led to all kinds of problems like adultery, idolatry, pornography, homosexuality, domestic violence, divorce, corruption at every level of government, and every other problem we face as a nation can all be traced back to the evil in the heart of man. Every problem we experience can all be traced back to the evil in men's hearts, things that people have done directly to others or that others have done to them. But everything, every problem, every heartache, every tear, everything we suffer in, the, in this life is the result of the evil in men's hearts. Now, they tell us the answer lies in better education. You probably heard this, right? This is the world's concept. If we can better educate people about AIDS, domestic violence, and drug abuse, they say we can solve these problems. Look, you can educate people about their sin, but folks, in my mind, that just makes them more educated sinners. <laughs> I mean, seriously, right? I mean, educating people about these things only deals with the symptoms anyways, doesn't it? And leaves really the basic underlying problem undealt with, which is man's wicked heart. A heart that is polluted with evil thoughts and desires. That is really the problem, isn't it? Because the heart is corrupt and polluted, out of it grows the evil fruit or the evil actions that we see in our society. 
It's kind of like weeds in a garden, folks. You don't just cut off the weeds at ground level and think you've solved the problem. They're going to come right back again. You've got to get down to the root cause, don't you? See, this is where the world misses it. This is where the experts blow it. They don't really understand, most of them, I guess. The psychologists and sociologists tell us that man's problem is his environment. Again, it's all outward, isn't it? You've heard this too, I'm sure. If we can, they say if we can somehow give people a better environment to live in, well, it's going to make them better people, less likely to live destructive lives towards themselves and others. And I suppose that that's true to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, areas that are very much affected by gang violence and crime uh, tend to breed some of that stuff. But, but the idea that that's the whole problem, the environment, I mean, I think that's missing the point, isn't it? First of all, it's totally ignorant of the fact that where did the first sin occur? In the ghetto? In the garden, right? In paradise. So this idea that we can somehow give people a better environment to live in now when we forget the fact that man sinned in the first place in the perfect environment, it's not going to cut it. It's not going to do it. See, the problem isn't outward, folks. It's inward. The Lord speaking in the book of Jeremiah said, the heart, talking about the fallen, depraved heart of man, God said is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jesus said that out of the evil attitudes in the heart proceed all kinds of evil and destructive actions. And, and the only real cure for man's problems is to somehow cleanse or purify his heart, which Jesus alluded to when he said, cleanse the inside of the cup and it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. That's what he was talking about. The only problem is man is helpless to cleanse his own heart, isn't he? Now, man thinks he can. Man thinks if he has enough religion and morality in his life, he'll cleanse his own heart. But listen to what the writer to the Proverbs says, Proverbs 20, verse 9. Solomon said, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. And, of course, the answer to that is nobody. God said in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, he said, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Or can the leopard change its spots? If so, then you who are accustomed to doing evil can start doing good. See, what God is saying to Jeremiah is we can't change our nature. We can't change what we are. We are fallen sinners at birth. We have a fallen, depraved heart and nature. And although we can modify our outward behavior at times, we can't really change what's going on inside of our heart. Now, people think that you can do that with religion, we'll say. And they say the answer is religion. But folks, religion at its best only surface cleanses a person's life and leaves the heart untouched. A good example is the Pharisees. They had a superficial outward form of self-righteousness based on their religion, and Jesus condemned it. He said in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 8, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And if you don't understand the context, let me give it to you. The three main feasts of the year were Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. One in the late spring, early summer, and then in the fall. These were the three main Jewish feasts, 
And pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world would converge on Jerusalem during these three major feast days. Sometimes a person had never been to Jerusalem in their whole life. This was their first time they were going to celebrate a Passover in Jerusalem. How exciting that would be. How much money it would cost for these poor people, really, to save up enough money. It may have taken 20 years or more to save up enough money to make a trip to Jerusalem once in their life to observe the Passover. What an exciting time that must have been. But, but because they were out-of-towners and didn't know the area very well, no, not at all, actually, they didn't know where the tombs were. And sometimes the tombs were not, you know, very visible. And if they inadvertently walked over a tomb containing, of course, a dead body, they would be defiled and would not be allowed to keep the Passover. You can imagine how devastating that would be, right? So as a courtesy to these pilgrim travelers, the Jews in the area would whitewash all the tombs. So that from a long distance away, you could see, wow, that must be a tomb. I mean, because you see the white, the brightness of it, you know? And you would stay clear of that area. And Jesus picked up on that, and he used it perfectly to describe religion, especially as it was lived in the lives of the Pharisees and scribes. He said, you know, you guys are very religious, and so outwardly you give the appearance of being holy and righteous and pure and all of that stuff, but God sees your hearts. God sees your hearts. You just read Matthew 23. Eight times he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You stand on the street corners and offer long prayers to God. Well, then you leave and you go and foreclose on widows' houses. He said, you're hypocrites, all right? You give a show, but you know what? Your heart is defiled. And so Jesus warned us against the dangers of religion because it only cleanses the outward, but gives us the illusion that we're right with God when the heart has been untouched. Now, here's the problem, guys. If we can't purify or cleanse our own hearts, not even through religious works or rituals or ceremonies, and only those who have a pure heart are going to wind up seeing God, in other words, living with Him forever and eternity, then how do we get a pure heart? If we can't do it, if it's something that's beyond our ability, then how do we get this pure heart to wind up spending eternity with God in heaven? Well, let's look briefly at that. First of all, what is a pure heart? What does it mean? You know, the Greek word for pure is katharos, and it has two basic meanings. Keep these in mind now. Clean and unmixed. Clean and unmixed. Our English word cathartic comes from this Greek word. A cathartic is an agent used by a doctor for the cleansing of the physical system. But we also speak of a catharsis on an emotional level. When a person is cleansed of bitterness and anger and other destructive emotions... So the physical, the emotional, but you know what? There's a third kind of catharsis. It's spiritual, which is the cleansing of the inner man or the heart. Remember when um, Peter was uh, led by the Holy Spirit to the house of uh, Cornelius? Remember in Acts chapter 10? And he goes there, and this is a house full of Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit says, go and minister to these folks, and they want to know about me. And so Peter preaches the gospel in the house of Cornelius, and they all get saved. All right. Well, this gets back to Jerusalem, because at this time, the Jewish believers thought that to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew, circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then you could believe in Christ and be saved. Here is a group of people who have received Christ without becoming Jews, and the Spirit of God has filled them, indicating they're genuinely saved. The Jewish believers had a problem with that. So they convened the first church council to talk about it. And Peter, being because he was the, the guy called on the carpet, because he's the guy that went to the Gentiles, Peter said, well, look, 
what was I supposed to do? Argue with the Holy Spirit? He sent me over there. He told me to preach. And as I preached, they all received Christ. Listen to what he said. And God purified their hearts by faith. God purified their hearts by faith. And then in 1 John 1, verse 7, John said, But if we walk in the light, in the truth, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And so, folks, first of all, pure in heart means a heart cleansed of sin through Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty obvious, right? But the Greek word for pure also involves being unmixed or undiluted. An example would be gold. When gold ore is placed in a pot and it's heated, it begins to melt, right? As it melts, it releases the dross, the impurities. They come floating to the surface, and the goldsmith, he scrapes off the dross, keeps heating the gold, it keeps floating to the surface. He keeps scraping off the dross until there's no more dross left, and at that point, the gold is what? It's pure. It's undiluted with dross, right? Same idea with wheat. Wheat that has been separated from the chaff is pure wheat. It is unmixed with chaff. The basic idea here with regard to our hearts is this. God is talking about the fact that he wants a heart that is completely devoted to him. A heart that is not diluted or mixed with a love for the world. Because that's what the Bible calls having a divided heart. Having a divided heart where we want to love God on the one hand and love the world on the other. There's a lot of Christians who have a divided heart. They're saved, but they're in the wilderness, you might say, spiritually speaking. They're not walking in the Spirit because the walk in the Spirit means that you have an undivided heart. I mean, God is everything. God is, you are totally committed to Him. See, when God cleanses a sinner and makes them a saint, when they receive Christ and become one of His children, they are made pure in heart in the sense that their sins are washed away. In fact, they receive a new heart. And so that's salvation, right? But God also wants that person to be pure in heart from the standpoint that God and God alone is now their first love, to whom belongs not only their love but their loyalty and their complete devotion. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. See, this is an ongoing thing. Yes, pure in heart deals with salvation, but pure in heart also deals with our ongoing communion with the Lord as well. David said this in Psalm 27, I believe, or maybe 24, where he said, Who can ascend to the hill of God? Who can have fellowship with him? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, David said. David's talking about ascending the hill or Mount Zion to where the temple was, or the tabernacle, I should say at this time, to have fellowship with God. David says, What person, what believer can have fellowship with God? He answers his own question. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, those who continue to maintain that relationship with God, whereby they are not letting the world come in and dilute their hearts, pollute it really, which will take them away from God. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. You know, that's like the Lord in the world. Can't do it. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And of course, mammon means money, but it would would deal with anything the world has to offer. Material things, money, power, 
prestige. I mean, Jesus said, that which is highly esteemed in the eyes of man is an abomination in the eyes of God. What the world prizes and puts all of its emphasis on and, and highly values, God says, all of that is an abomination to God. What God values is a heart that is totally given over to him. God is looking at the heart. God wants a loyal heart from us. Turn to Joshua 24. Of course, most of you remember this climactic admonition that Joshua gave the children of Israel right before he was about ready to die. The children of Israel had been in the promised land for about 30 years at this point, and already they were beginning to turn over to idolatry, some of them. So Joshua calls them together one last time, and he challenges them. He says, look, you guys have got to choose who you want to serve. You've got to make your minds up. You've got to choose to serve either the gods of the Canaanites or the Lord God Almighty. Now, that's up to you, but you've got to make a choice here. And if it seems evil to you, verse 15, to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, the Jordan River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had a pure heart. He had an undiluted and therefore unpolluted heart for God. His whole deal was, Lord, I'm in the world, but the world's never going to be in me. Only you have my heart. And I will live for you to my dying breath, but I will not try to love you and the world at the same time. Folks, a pure heart can't help but produce a changed life. As Jesus said again, if you cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. When God puts his heart inside of you, it will absolutely manifest itself in a change of behavior. It's a change that happens from the inside out. Religion tries to affect change from the outside in. It only gets about the surface level, and that's it, as far as it can go. But when Jesus comes into our heart, he gives us a new heart. And our attitudes change, and our actions begin to change as well. Now, let me just end by saying this. I know there are some of you here this morning who are thinking, well, you know, I, I don't know what happened to me. I... I used to have a pure heart for the Lord. I mean, man, I was on fire for him. I used to guard my heart against the things of the world. Man, I was full-on committed to the Lord. I mean, he was my first love, my only love. Man, I just would go to church all the time. I'd be in the Word all the time. And, 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 and my heart was undivided for him. It was, it was unmixed. And I don't know what's happened. I don't, I don't know how my heart has gotten kind of cold. And I've kind of gotten back into some of the things of the world. And I just don't know what happened to me. I think there's a lot of God's people, if they were honest, would admit they feel that way. And they don't really know what has happened, what has changed their heart. Well, let's look at a guy like David for a second. You know, David was called by God a man after my own heart. That's pretty good, right? We know David wasn't a, a perfect man. We know that. When God said that David is a man after my own heart, God wasn't saying David is a perfect man. Because we all know David wasn't. What he was saying is that David had a heart that was totally devoted to God. David loved the Lord. Yeah, he blew it. He was a man. We all blow it because we're all human beings, right? But David wasn't playing games with God. David was a guy that was fully devoted to God. You said, well, then what happened? How could he have sinned such great sins as he did? Well, he was a man too. The best of men are men at best, as the old saying goes. And what happened was after David had fought for many years in the trenches, fighting the battles of God against the enemies of God, he had accumulated great wealth and at one point builds himself a brand new cedar palace. You remember the story, right? And so in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, it says David wanted to stay home and enjoy his palace. He sends Joab, his general, to fight his battles for him. 
David became complacent. He became comfortable. That's always what happens when our hearts begin to move away from God. We become complacent. We become comfortable. We feel like we don't really need to go to church as much as we used to. You know, I've learned a lot. i got enough knowledge, whatever it might be. And, you know, we make justifications and excuses. This gave David a lot of free time. As the old saying goes, idleness is the devil's workshop, right? So one night, David couldn't sleep, and he was a little bored, so he went up on top of his roof on his palace. And, of course, in Israel, the roofs, as I've already said, are patios. If you go into Israel with us, you know, we've, we've seen how that, you know, there's patio furniture on the roofs, and people, it's an extended uh, family area uh, of each dwelling place and all. And so David was taking a walk on the top of his palace, and uh, I would imagine he had a beautiful view of the city. And, of course, the houses that were built were below the roof of the palace, which was no doubt up high. And as he looks down, he sees a very beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. He later on finds out her name is Bathsheba. He's really taken with her. In fact, he's lusting after her, sends a couple of his servants over, and they persuade her to come to the king. And he seduces her and has an affair with her. This was a very, very black page in, Israel, in David's otherwise stellar life for God. A man after God's own heart doing something like that is kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Just tells us you can love God with all your heart and still be susceptible to some of the grossest, overt kinds of sins you never thought you could commit if you don't stay close to God. And so for a whole year, of course, she gets pregnant and David tries to cover it up and has her own husband killed in the process. It was a horrible page and David's life. And for a whole year, he was out of fellowship with God. You can read about how that year was in Psalm 32. He talks about it. He was miserable. In Psalm 51, David records how he repented at one point. How he repented. The problem was, as I've alluded to before we talk about that, what caused David to fall? He became comfortable and he became complacent. Those are always the ingredients that lead us to begin to turn our heart away from God. We get comfortable, we get complacent. If we're always fighting the battles of God, if we're always on our knees and, and praying and, and wanting to, to, to take more territory for the glory of God from the enemy, guess what? You're going to be too busy fighting the battles of God for the devil to slip in there and mess with you. Oh, he'll still mess with you. He'll oppress you and, and even persecute you, but he's not going to be able to take you away from God. So David hearted drifted toward God because he got comfortable, he got complacent. But at the end of that year, he repents. So we read in Psalm 51, starting in verses 1 and 2, he cries out to God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here David is repenting, saying, God, I know it's your mercy. I'm not asking for something I deserve. I don't deserve forgiveness. I deserve death. I committed adultery. Your law says the adulterer must be stoned, and yet you have seen fit to show me mercy. You have not killed me. And now he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Who is the only one who can create in us a clean heart? God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, I'm tired of living this vacillating, sickening life where I'm just, you know, one day I'm strong with you, the next day I'm in the world and back and forth, up and down. 
Renew a steadfast spirit in me, O Lord. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Look, it isn't too late to ask God to cleanse your heart and draw you back to him again. It's never too late. In fact, the Lord has got his arms open. I'm convinced that whenever we walk away from him, he doesn't just keep on going and leave us. He waits for us. You know, until we're done doing our little deal and making our little detour in the world, he's waiting for us with open arms. Saying, anytime you're ready, I'm here. We'll start walking again. It's not too late. I mean, it's not like you think I didn't know you were going to do this. I knew it. And I still love you. And I have not rejected you. You've walked away from me, but I told you I was never going to leave nor forsake you. You come back to me. And we'll start walking again together. Don't waste any more time. Time is too short, right? Do what John said. Again, his first epistle, chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You get a brand new slate, don't you? His mercies are new every morning. Every day is a brand new beginning. Every time you repent and confess your sins, the Bible says God forgives you. He drowns those sins in the sea of forgetfulness and he remembers them no more and he puts a sign up that says no fishing allowed because he has forgiven you those sins they are forgotten. He says, now, it's a fresh start. Let's start walking together again. This is the first day now of the rest of your life. May God give us the grace to understand that. God loves us so much. He has shown us so much mercy. May God give us grace to show mercy to a hurting world that, yes, has made their own bed. Yes, are reaping the consequences of their own sin, just like we were doing. And God showed us mercy. Let us show them mercy that they would know how much God loves them. And then, of course, by God's grace, may he give us a pure heart every day to wake up and say, Lord, today I want to live for you completely. I don't want a love for anything to dilute my love for you. Give me grace to walk with you in the Spirit. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which, again, so encourages our hearts, so tells us how much you love us, Lord. Father, forgive us when we take one of those detours away from you into the world. And then when we do, the devil is right there to condemn us and to tell us, oh, you are such a worthless excuse for a Christian. Why don't you just walk away from God for the rest of your life? He, he's done with you. He's not going to forgive you this time. And Lord, we listen to that, and it isolates us from you. It alienates us from you in our hearts. And all the while, you are standing right there going, come to me. I love you. With your arms open wide, I love you. I will never forsake you. You come back to me and we'll start walking together together once again. Give us, Lord, that kind of heart. A heart that understands how much you love us and a heart that loves you so much that sin doesn't become an issue anymore. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.